recommendation I'm going to make is actually, if you remember, what I'm doing is just showing you the books we're going to use for elder and deacon training. The, the book is uh, The Deacon, Biblical Foundations for Today's Ministry of Mercy by Cornelis Van Dam. This book basically walks you through the Old Testament, very much a longer version of what I gave you today, if I could actually just spell that out. It goes through the Old Testament mercy ministries of what was done in Israel. Oh, and also I'm going to interrupt to say one thing. If you guys could all come as far forward as you can stand it, they're going to use those back rows. They're going to actually pull the back rows out and set up tables for lunch. So the further up you come, the more tables we'll have set up. It'll be awesome. Um, but anyway, so he basically walks you through Old Testament. He shows you the mercy ministry they did in Israel. He shows the, the ministry to widows, the sojourner, the, the poor. And how was it that Israel was given to take care of these things? And then, and then he goes to the New Testament and shows how what's going on in the Old Testament is still carried over in the New. And then he talks very practically. He talks about uh, qualifications for deacons. He talks about the history of the diac- diaconate uh, in the Reformation. And he talks about basically training and knowing how deacons should minister to the church, how they should care for the poor. And then it includes study questions for the deacon candidates to discuss. Now, when we do elder and deacon training, the elders and deacons will all read this book, even though only some are going to be deacons. And the reason for that is because we want the elders and deacons to understand each other's office. When you understand each other's office, then you're going to do a better job of not overlapping and taking over somebody else's work. Um, If you are unclear on what the different offices are and what they require, then you may end up start doing somebody else's work. And so... This gives clarity, and it helps everybody understand the offices better. So I'm going to pass this one around. You can take a look. Um, Who knows? Maybe you were so inspired by this sermon today that even though you don't plan on becoming a deacon, you just want to read a book about the deacons. If so, this is the way to go. By the way, the work of deacons is complicated enough that if I could, you know, we would have the deacons candidates read a lot of books. There's a really good book by... uh, Tim Keller, I believe it's called Ministries of Mercy, does a really good job of focusing on that mercy side of the diaconate. Um, There's another book called When Helping Hurts. It's a very good book on knowing the limits of um, what we should do for those who need financial help. Sometimes if you help somebody too much, you actually can create somebody who's a dependent and not somebody who's able to get on their own feet. And so When Helping Hurts is a really good book as well. Um, so some of this is going to be me recommending books, but then not actually making the, the uh, nominees read them. So <laughs> you've got to balance. You've got to decide how much to have people read and how, how much not to have them read. Um, so we, are, we have just finished the Old Testament. We're, again, this is overview. So we're doing superficial run-throughs. We're kind of grabbing onto a few ideas and themes, and then we're moving on quickly. And so now we're at the New Testament. Uh, before we talk about the New Testament, though, I want to talk, just give you a, a little bit of a spiel about the Bible as a whole. Uh, remember, how many books are in the Old Testament? Thirty-nine books in the Old Testament. Now, for the mathematicians in the in the room, if there are uh, sixty-six books in the whole Bible, then how many do we have in the New Testament? Yeah, we have twenty-seven. There are no Roman Catholics in the room. I see. Okay. So <laughs> we'll talk about the Apocrypha in a little bit. Um, uh, the Old Testament was written by a large number of authors between 1400 and 
400 BC. The New Testament, however, written in a very much more compressed period of time between about 40 and 90 AD. So we're talking about a much tighter period of composition for the New Testament. Uh, In terms of your authors, you have people from all sorts of different walks of life. You have fishermen, you have historians, you have religious leaders, you have doctors, uh, all of them doing what? Writing down what Jesus did, making sure to address churches and make sure that they're writing down their own understanding of what happened. And of course, we know that this happens by God's inspiration. I'll talk about inspiration at the end. Actually, we'll see. I might have removed that and moved on because we've already talked about inspiration. I think we talked about inspiration when we're at the very beginning of our Old Testament lesson. Um, so on the one hand, what is the New Testament? On the one hand, the New Testament is a historical record. Each book of the Bible, this is one of the things I've, I've got a wonderful book uh, that I'm reading through right now. It's called A Doubter's Guide to, to Jesus. A Doubter's Guide to Jesus. It's a really good book. Once I finish it, I'll probably recommend it to you. Instead, all you get is an unofficial recommendation for now. But in that book, he talks about the fact that when we look at the New Testament, we are not looking at a document that is attesting to Jesus. What we are looking at is 27 documents attesting to Jesus. Uh, The New Testament doesn't count as one piece of evidence. It's 27 pieces of evidence. It's 27 different people talking about the impact that Jesus had in the early church. Um, So it's also, though, more than a collection of personal letters. It's more than an ancient record. It is a book about life itself. It's about the purpose of the cosmos, the purpose of creation, and about our responsibility before the creator. Um, more than just a book, this is how God decided to reveal himself. It's, it's specifically how God decided to reveal the way of salvation. Uh, we live in a time when that is desperately needed. One of the things that um, I have heard so often, in fact, I was just listening to a secular podcast um, this last week, I think, And one of the hosts of the podcast was talking about the rise in suicide that had been happening over the last two years. And the thing that he said that I thought was interesting, again, not a Christian, he said, it feels like people are left without a community and they don't have a purpose. And when you remove people's community and you leave them lonely and then you then you take away their sense of purpose, then you then you leave people who have nothing to live for. And that immediately, you know, makes me think of just what a gift the New Testament is and what a gift the Bible is to us and specifically the Christian religion. Because it solves both of those issues, uh, things that are so pressing upon human beings right now in a moment like this. Now, let's talk specifically about the New Testament, not, not necessarily the Old. Let's move past the Old. We already did an overview of that. The New Testament is written in, how many languages is the New Testament written in? All right, we got, I've heard one, I heard three. Uh, what is one language the New Testament is written in? All right, so we've got Greek. And who do we have to thank for Greek being the main language? Alexander, we talked about it last week. Uh, what other language is the New Testament written in? What's that? Hebrew. Close. Aramaic looks like Hebrew. Aramaic looks like Hebrew. I never took Aramaic class at school because I, I, I got enough of Hebrew, you know? And then, and then Hebrew and then Aramaic is sort of like a popular level version of Hebrew. It's sort of like what came about for the common person who's talking in Israel. I mean, it, you think about how the English language changes just from the time of William Shakespeare to now. Well, 
Hebrew went through its own changes as well. So you have the text that's written in Hebrew, and then you have the language they speak, which is Aramaic. Um, there is a little tiny bit of Latin, right, uh, written over the, uh, uh, the cross of Christ. Uh, but that's it. That's, that it's, it, I mean, basically, if you know Greek and you know Aramaic, you can read it all. And the Aramaic is minuscule. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's only the book of Daniel has part of it that's written in Aramaic. So if you learn Aramaic, you're like, I'm really going to get good at Daniel, basically. Uh, and I'll be able to read what Jesus says from the cross. That's about it. So there's not a lot of, of Aramaic. It's mostly Greek. Um, <clears throat> the New Testament's a mix of styles. You have uh, four Gospels that are written. They are biography, they are narrative, they are history, they are theology. Sort of take your pick if you want to narrow them down. Uh, you have four Gospels, but you have three of them that are synoptic Gospels. Does anyone know what the word synoptic means? What's that? Same story, basically. Same story, different ways. That is what it... So, what's that? Summary. Summary? Now nah, I should stop doing this. This is mean. Synopsis means see together. It means see together. You know, opsis... And then sin, and you put them together, it's seeing together. Um, seeing together, that's what the synoptics are. So what happens, the reason we call them synoptics. The reason we call them synoptics is because they are all basically telling the same narrative. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can oftentimes find uh, harmonizations of them. Uh, John Calvin's commentary on the, the Gospels is really just his harmonization of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He writes them all together, and then he does a separate commentary on John. And the reason is because there's so much overlap between the events and even the order in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Sometimes things get changed around a little, but not much. They're telling the same narrative, and some of them are omitting things. Some of them are including things. Mark especially pulls stuff out. He says, let's, let's just get down and dirty. Let's tell the narrative. Let's say what happened. Uh, whereas Matthew will include long teachings by Jesus. You'll have long stretches of... of uh, uh, sermons by Christ in Matthew that just don't show up at all in Mark. Um, you also see sort of a historian's touch in Luke. Luke is very self-conscious. He talks about the different um, the different things that he's he's drawing upon, the work that he's put into to, uh, to writing all of this. And so um, then you have John's gospel, which is not considered a synoptic. John's gospel sort of is in a class all its own. We're going to talk later about John's gospel separately from the synoptics. Um, and so, yeah, it's not considered a synoptic gospel. Um, you have the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a history of the early church. Uh, that's a very different uh, narrative than what you have in the gospel. So it sort of sits off on its own. And then the rest of the New Testament is basically 21 letters to different churches and different individuals related to what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow Christ? What does it mean for our practical everyday life for us to be a Christian? And that's what these, these letters are. So you've got quite a spread. And then you have read the book of Revelation, which is considered the genre of apocalypse, which is sort of off on its own and doesn't have any twins, at least in the New Testament. Uh, the closest comparison in the Old Testament is probably Daniel uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of apocalyptic genre. Um, but I want to talk about the canon. I specifically want to talk about how we got our list of books in the canon. I want to give a short version of this because I don't want to make it the focus but I also have found that there's a lot of confusion sometimes among Christians in terms of our table of contents. So if you go to the front of your Bible and you look at your table of contents, you will see 66 books there. 
And there are a lot of Christians who say to themselves, how did we get these books? How did we get this table of contents? Was there some pope one day who decided it was time to declare which books are good and which books we should ignore? How did we get this? Um, or if you, who, uh, who watched The Da Vinci Code or read The Da Vinci Code? Anybody? Anybody willing to fess up? Yeah? We got some fessers. Uh, <laughs> um, Hans Zimmer wrote a song for the Da Vinci Code that makes it almost all worthwhile, though. It's really good, the soundtrack. Um, so the canon. When we, when we say canon, what does the word canon mean? And I don't mean like the gun that shoots. <laughs> Measuring stick, standard, right? Rule. Um, that's what it is. So the canon is the standard. In other words, what is everything compared to? What is the thing that everybody wants to aspire to? Um, the canon of scripture, the list of the books. In other words, if you're talking about the list of the books that are included in your table of contents, they, it develops very naturally in the early church. So what happens is people write. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they write their account of the life of Jesus. And then what happens when they hand that off to somebody? Well, they don't just say, well, that's great, and then throw it in the trash can. Instead, they say, someone else needs to read this. And so they go to the elaborate work, and it's always elaborate to write a manuscript, the, the elaborate work of creating another copy. And so they would sit down, and I don't know, have any of you ever, as a, as a, dis, a, a, as a discipline, written out a book of the Bible, like in a notebook? It's actually a great way to do memorization, a great way to take in the text. Um, you know, when I do that, I have sloppy handwriting, and I don't care about it if anybody else can read it. But when they're doing it, they're doing, they're doing careful work. They're making sure that they write down a copy of this book because there is no other way to get another copy into somebody's hand. We're not going to have Xerox or color printers for, you know, 2,000 more years. It's going to be a while. So what do they do? They write down, they copy these books, and the ones that they go to the effort of copying are the ones that are worthwhile. They're, they're not copying everything that anybody writes about Jesus and distributing those. Instead, they're taking the books that they recognize as having a divine touch to them. Um, and that starts off very early. Um, you actually look at early church. You actually find in Peter's letters, Peter's already talking about Paul's letters being copied and distributed around. You're already seeing that as soon as they're getting these letters, no sooner are they getting them than they're copying them. At one point in 1 Timothy, Paul quotes from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, so we know that by probably the year 50 at least, maybe 60, Paul has already got himself a copy of the book of Luke, or he's at least read it. He's quoting it word for word, and then he's telling his readers as the scriptures say. Uh, very fascinating that he does that. Um, but you look at the early church, it's very striking that there is little controversy over book which books to read. Um, Within the first 100, 150 years, you already see a core collection of scriptural books that people are pointing to, that they're quoting from, that, they are, that they're appealing to, and they're saying, this is the standard, this is the book. So I'll give you an example of what the core would look like. Um, that would be the four Gospels, the book of Acts, Paul's 13 letters, Hebrews, 1 Peter, and 1 John, and Revelation. All of these books, by the middle of the second century, they're being used universally, they're being appealed to universally, they're being treated with the same authority that they treat the Old Testament text. The same authority that you would quote the book of Psalms with, you're going to quote from Luke chapter 15. 
Um, this is the way that the scriptures start being used. And you know that because if you read the early church fathers, that's what you start to see. This is how they treat the Bible. This is how they treat the New Testament. And they treat the New Testament books like they treat the Old Testament books. Now, that doesn't mean that every single book that's in our New Testament now didn't have anybody who was arguing against it. You have books like Jude. You have, a, uh, you have a Second and Third John. You have Second Peter. These are books that people were slower to adopt. So, that, so basically what you have with the New Testament is you have virtually the entire New Testament understood and agreed on. And then you have some books that people are still debating and still working through. There's fuzziness around the edges, but there's a solid core of what the New Testament is by the, by the end of the second century. Um, there's really no debate over the specific books that are in the core. There's no, there are no votes, no church councils. Nothing like that. They don't settle the books that way. Instead, they're settled by use. They use them. They use them and um, <clears throat> eventually what you have is the natural emergence of the canon of the church. Now you have other books that come later that we, we call them pseudonymous. Do you know what that means? False name. It's a pseudonym, false name. It's not their real name. So you'd have people writing a gospel of Thomas, for example. You would have somebody writing a gospel of Mary. You'd have somebody writing a gospel of Peter. Um, you have a, a gospel of the cross, where a cross actually comes out of the tomb and gives a speech to people. Um, you have just interesting things that, that come out, like in your, your reaction to that is to chuckle because there is something wrong about that, right? There is something that we just know that's not the way it happened. Um, the, uh, you have other apocryphal books. They do settle. Uh, they, do, they do come into existence. There are these apocryphal writings. When we say apocryphal, we just simply mean that they don't belong in the canon. They're outside the canon. Uh, but you do have people who are writing things um, that no one's interested in copying. You know, the, the Gospel of Thomas. We have very few copy, copies of the Gospel of Thomas. That, that is not because there was a concerted campaign in the, in the early church to suppress the Gospel of Thomas. The reason is because the Gospel of Thomas is written late, probably the 300s or 400s, which is way too late to be an eyewitness account. You also have the fact that nobody wanted to copy the Gospel of Thomas. Nobody wants to send on the Gospel of Thomas to somebody else. Because it's not, not legitimate. There are some very strange things that Jesus says there. Things that don't line up with the other gospels. Uh, things that seem to be clearly late editions. Things that seem to be focused on the agendas of groups that emerge later on. And so the early church looks at this stuff and they're like, I'm not copying the gospel of Thomas. It's not that someone stood there with a gun and said, you can't copy the gospel of Thomas. We're destroying all the copies. It was that people didn't want to make copies of this book. And it was for a good reason. It was because it didn't, because it didn't, it was too late and they knew that. Um, you have other, um, oh, Proto-Evangelium of James uh, is another one. Here's what happened. These books died a quiet death of neglect. It's not that they, it's not that anybody has to aggressively get rid of them. It's that nobody wants to read them. Um, so you can still buy books that'll, that'll have collections of these. Sometimes there are a few copies left, enough, enough for them to actually translate and put them into books. And uh, it seems like, uh, I don't know if the Daily News or any of these weird tabloids are still in existence, probably are. Uh, but, um, you, know, that, you know, you would always see some new headline, new lost gospel, suppressed gospel. Uh, just, it was just felt like uh, the Inquirer always ended up putting those on the covers for some reason. Um, and it's like very, very old news. Like these have been around for a long time and nobody, nobody winked at them. 
Um, <clears throat> but they weren't contenders to be part of the canon. Very few people actually arguing that this is legitimate scripture. Instead, reading the apocryphal gospels is interesting. It's helpful to sort of understand what somebody thought at a particular period of time in the church's life. Um, an interesting way of looking at sort of if somebody was to create a document that would help steer the church towards somebody's views, those books are interesting to read because you almost can see an agenda behind them. You can see a party that really wants to have some influence. That's why you would put a name on it like Thomas or Mary or Peter because when you do that, suddenly everyone goes, oh, but what if it is? And then they read it more closely. So um, what I want you to get out of your head is this idea that the church is sitting around going, okay, which books do we like? Which books do we not like? Uh, hey, which books should we make sure nobody reads anymore? It's not like that. Um, it's very natural. It develops organically, not dogmatically. So when you think of the canon, don't think of a bunch of guys in a room with gavels, you know, basically burning a pile of books. It's not like that at all. Um, the church, think of it this way. The church does not create the canon of scripture. The church has no authority over scripture at all. Instead, all the church does is receive and recognize what God has given. Think of it in those terms. Sometimes you'll hear debates. Does the church create the canon or does the canon create the church? God creates the church. God gives the canon and the church receives the canon. So I think that's the better way of thinking about it. By the way, if you're really, 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 really interested in the subject of canon, my, uh, Mike Kruger has a book called Canon Revisited. It is a worthwhile book. It's very, very in-depth, and it goes a lot more into this than I just did. Um, by the way, here's a, here's a... Oh, yeah, Micah. How should we think of something if something does come out that was, say, uh, <clears throat> Paul's letter to the Laodiceans? Mm-hmm. Uh, if that were to be unearthed today... Um, that's a great question. Mike Kruger would say no. And he would say no because he would say, because the church itself has not received it. It was never read, understood. It would have been, because we know he wrote more letters. We know he wrote more letters than just what we have of his 13 letters. We know that he wrote more. And yet, if the book was to be found and the book was to be uncovered, it would be an interesting historical document. It would maybe even be helpful for understanding Paul if we, if, if we were to get it. But it wouldn't be scripture. Um, and that's not because, not because everything Paul wrote, it's because not everything Paul writes necessarily is scripture. It's what the church receives, what God has said, and what God's given to us as scripture. So, but that's an awful mean thing to ask me because that's very, very. <laughs> because because it would be so exciting, you know. <laughs> I would be very excited to read any new letters from Paul that were found that were actually legitimate, but it would be hard to argue for their legitimacy if no one's been copying them and no one's been sharing them. Yeah. Isn't it like some of the helpful books that we have written today or things that the church fathers wrote that even though they may not be scripture, they're still meditations and useful, mm-hmm. but not the same? Yeah. Like yeah. That's helpful, but it's not scripture. Yeah, Augustine's Confessions is not scripture. Um, and, and even if you go really early, Shepherd of Hermas might be the first book that's written after the closing of the canon. In, um, uh, it's an interesting book. It's kind of a trippy book. It's confusing in some ways, but it's also really neat and interesting still to read some of these early writings. So don't, don't hear me saying there's nothing good to be found in the Apocrypha or that there's nothing helpful to be found there, but we treat them on very different levels than we would from scripture. So, um, 
Um, oh yeah, one thing I want to address, the, um, the, the Da Vinci Code. One of the things the Da Vinci Code says is that at the Council of Nicaea, that the canon was chosen. They didn't even talk about the canon as far as we know at the Council of Nicaea. So totally a fictional invention. Uh, it didn't actually get invented by Dan Brown. Does anyone know who invented the idea of Council of Nicaea choosing the books? Voltaire. Voltaire in the 1700s had invented this idea that they had taken all the books of the, the, that they had written and they put them all on a platform and whatever fell off was not canon and whatever stayed on was canon. And Voltaire, and he said that that happened at the Council of Nicaea. So that's where you get that, that idea start to develop. Yeah, Travis. I don't know a lot about the Eastern Orthodox view of canon, but my understanding is that they claim that there were a lot of other teachings of the apostles that were circulating that were not necessarily <coughs> down and that the church has preserved those teachings outside of the written text and that those teachings are just as valid because they were authentic apostolic teachings. So how would you respond to that? Well, the, not all that different from the Roman church, really, because the Roman church says, you know, you've got scripture, you've got the tradition. And I think that that would be the word for what they're talking about. They're saying we have a received tradition. And if you ask, the, at least the, I'm more familiar with Roman Catholic approach to this. But if you ask a Roman Catholic, how do you know what the tradition is, this authoritative tradition is? They would say, just check out the church councils. They'd say, that's how you know what the tradition is. Look at papal statements that are made ex cathedra. That's how you know what the tradition is. So if we don't have it in writing, if we don't know what it is, or if we don't have it in a physical form that we can look at that's objective, then they would say, just look at what the church does, and that's how you know what the tradition is. They say it displays itself in time. Um, now, I don't know particularly how the Eastern Orthodox do that without a pope. I know they've got the Patriarch of Constantinople, um, but I don't think, I don't know that he makes pronouncements the way that Rome does. So, yeah, I, that's probably a blind spot for me. If someone else knows, then feel free to answer. Um, but I would say this claims to traditions that are not objectively val uh, verifiable are problematic to me. Um, because basically it's a way of blindly validating your church's decisions without needing to appeal to a written standard that, you have that, that everyone agrees you've received from God. So simply saying, well, we made this decision, and even though it's not in Scripture, it's part of the tradition. You know, the Virgin Mary's... Uh, um, uh, perpetual virginity, for example, is taught as something that is a received tradition. And if you listen to Roman Catholics argue for it, one of the things they're going to say is that the Virgin Mary's perpetual virginity has always been known to the church. It simply wasn't written down in the Bible. And that is, I think, I'm going to put it really negatively. I just think that's a very convenient way to invent things that are not in the Bible and be able to put the stamp of God's approval on it. Um, I want someone to take me to the text of Scripture. That's, that's what we know for sure God's given to us. So, yeah, even if Paul writes other letters or there are other documents out there, um, it's not Scripture. Yeah, Eric. You mentioned several books that were kind of like on the, on the fringe. Mm -hmm. How did those, were, how did the debates around those resolve themselves over time? Um, actually, I'm not, I'm not prepared to come up with an answer for that. Even though I read Kruger's book, um, it was like six years ago, so I'm not going to make an answer up. Yeah, Michael.
2nd and 3rd John really slow to be accepted is like you think through the reading of 2nd and 3rd John, A, they're super tiny, mm -hmm. and B, they, they don't speak to the life of the church in the same way that like Ephesians does, mm -hmm. right? When it talks to an elect sister who he's worried about, who he wants to go and visit, speak more in person, right? It doesn't naturally seem like something that would have the same authority level mm -hmm. um, on there, but because they were written by the apostles and they were actually regularly circulated, they ended up moving into it. Yeah. But, um, this is always this is a question where like a historian's really helpful because they're going to be able to give you specifics and eh, I'm not a historian I'm a pastor. Um, but you see, here's the problem with being a pastor: you got to kind of know how to do everything. So that's the hard part. Um, but anyway, yeah, the canon is not adopted at the Council of Nicaea. Um, here's how Kruger puts it. He's, he's, he wrote a book called Surviving Religion 101, and he writes it for basically high school students that are going off to college. Uh, and he's writing about this specific question, you know, what about the books in the canon? How do we know the right books made it? And he puts it like this. He says, to ask the earliest Christians why they chose these books would be like asking someone why he chose his parents. People don't choose their parents. They've just been there from the start. And in many ways, that's the way the church is, right? When they, when they get the gospel of John in front of them, they rejoice, their eyes are filled with tears, they see the mark of God upon this text, they, they see that this is written by someone who walked with Jesus, they see that this is someone who knew the Lord, and they know that what they're reading is the true account of what happened. And so they respond to that differently than, they, than when they see Jesus pick up the clay pigeon in the gospel of Thomas and bring it to life. And when he says that for a, man to, for a woman to enter the kingdom of God, she must first become a man. And people see that and they go... Was this written in 2022? <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Um, like there's a, there's a reason why people react with sort of this kind of strange disgust at some of the apocryphal works. So um, now here's what happens. Later councils, much later, we're talking the 700s, end up making official the canon of scripture, but it's, it's, it's af way after it's already in place and everybody all knows it. And when they make the statements, it's not controversial whatsoever. So um, I could say more about that, but instead I want to actually start talking about the synoptic gospels. So we mentioned uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they are the synoptics. And so let's just start to tiptoe through the narrative of Jesus's life. A few introductory comments about Jesus. Um, first of all, if I wanted, we could do a 30-week series on the life of Jesus, and we would not even scratch the surface, right? Isn't that what John says in his gospel? He basically says all the world could be filled with books about Jesus, and you still wouldn't say everything that could be said. Um, and so I'm going to just lightly talk to you about Jesus, talk to you about his life, talk to you about what the New Testament documents say, specifically focused on the synoptics, not John's gospel. So we'll do John's gospel after we finish the synoptics. Um, but first of all, a few words. First of all, Jesus. Jesus was born. That is actually a very special thing to say. I know it's really obvious to a room full of Christians. But it's really important for us to say that Jesus was a real man who really existed. He historically walked the earth. Uh, a person like you and me. With a body. With a soul. With a mind. With the ability to think. He lived a linear life. He was born one moment. He experienced one moment to the next, just like we do. 
Um, even the most hardened skeptic does not argue that Jesus never existed at all. The people who want to argue that Jesus didn't exist at all are so far on the fringes that they're not taken seriously. Um, every historian has to reckon with the person of Jesus. Um, if we want to know, though, who the man is, if we want to know who Jesus is, if we want to know where he came from, then we have to start at the beginning. And so that's where Matthew and Luke start. Luke and Matthew both open with the genealogy of Jesus. Um, sometimes people want to skip the genealogy. For, for a lot of people, the genealogy is not exactly the most exciting, the most thrilling part of the Bible. However, uh, I want you to notice a few things that the presence of the genealogies say. Here's one thing. The genealogy summarizes the story of the Bible. When you look at the Gospel of Matthew, for example, and you read through the genealogy, you are basically seeing the high points of redemptive history all being touched on every bit of the way. It's like Matthew wants you to know this is not something that is separate from Israel. This is very much a continuation of the story of Israel as we left off in the book of Malachi, right? book of Malachi ends with that cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Israel now? Is God going to speak to them again? And then Matthew opens up with a genealogy that gives you the story and brings you up to this point, up to the point of Jesus' birth. Um, so you're seeing Adam, you're seeing Abraham, you're seeing David, you're seeing Moses, you're seeing all of these figures in the life, not Moses, uh, in the life of Jesus, in the ancestry uh, of where Jesus comes from. Knowing these major figures helps us frame the whole story. So when we're reading the genealogy and Matthew's starting off this way, he's trying to tell you Jesus is born of this long line of people. So don't try to separate him from them. Don't, don't think that he was airdropped in. You need to understand that he was a real human person. He actually had a human nature. Um, the Docetists. Uh, later on, tried to argue that Jesus didn't have a physical body, that he was just sort of illusory, that he was an appearance, maybe a, a phantasm, uh, that he wasn't physically there. And the genealogy dispels that. It says, no, actually, he had a father. He had a, well, he had a mother, at least. He had an earthly father. He had a mother. And he had a long line of people who came from before. And so Jesus is a real man who comes from a real, uh, a real historical situation. Um, the authors are convinced that it matters who the Messiah is and it matters where he comes from. And so you get the genealogy. Um, there are also some names on the list that are really worth noting. They're worth looking at. You have David, you have Solomon, kings of Israel. One of the reasons that's important is because it's prophesied in the Old Testament that he would be a son of who? A son of David, right? They need to establish, they need to actually show you that that's not a metaphor there's also something literal to that. There's something metaphorical to it as well. But there's something literal here. He actually legitimately could sit on the throne of Israel. He actually is a son of David. Um, and that's part of the promise God makes in 2 Samuel 7. So what Matthew's also doing is he's also making sure you understand he fulfills promises. He fulfills these things. It's not, uh, again, he doesn't just airdrop in, but he shows up. And he's part of a long line of, of figures. Um, something else that's beautiful about the genealogy is you've got these questionable figures. You've got Manasseh, terrible king, terrible king. Um, you have Rahab, who is a Gentile prostitute. She was a faithful woman. She actually ended up helping God's people, and, but she's in the long line of family. Uh, you have Ruth, who is a Moabite Gentile. Uh, the Moabites weren't even allowed to be in the temple court of Israel, uh, and yet she is in his family tree. 
There, again, there are beautiful things here about the way that Gentiles get included and even bad kings get included as Jesus's story. You know, what's, what's being communicated there? I think part of what's being communicated there is that he comes from a line of sinners. It's not like there's some uh, immaculate line that Jesus is conceived out of that's just preserved, perfect, and pure. Instead, it's just running through like the worst people in Israel's history, and it's saying that's where the king comes from. That's where the redeemer comes from. So, yeah, don't miss the genealogy. There's something really beautiful in the genealogy of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> the virgin conception. That needs to be addressed because Matthew and Luke both claim that Mary became pregnant during his enga- her engagement. Both of these books also insist that Joseph never slept with his wife before Jesus was born. Um, both of those books tell us that he was born, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so what happens? Well, in the narrative, we, we know the story. I mean, we've heard it year after year, right? Joseph makes plans to divorce her quietly. The word divorce gets used because in those days uh, to, be, to be engaged to somebody was a form of, it was like marriage. You know, you, you actually have legal things that have to be gone through in order to break off an engagement. Um, Old Testament, you have Isaiah chapter 7 predicts that the virgin would give birth to a son. They would call his name Emmanuel. That isn't Jesus' name. It's one of his titles. Emmanuel is Jesus' title describing who he is. Um, now, a lot of people have trouble with this idea. They have trouble with the idea, for some reason, that uh, Jesus would actually be born of a virgin that, that uh, Mary would have conceived uh, and given birth to a son without sleeping with a man. They just find it so hard to believe. And generally, I just don't have a very sympathetic response to that. I, and the reason is not because I can't imagine why someone would have a problem with it, but it's simply because it's a question of worldview. Either miracles are possible or they're not. Either someone decides in advance that a miracle is not possible and therefore I can't figure out how this happened, or they live in a world where God can work as he desires, and if he can create the heavens and the earth, then it is certainly possible for him to implant, uh, fertilize an egg inside of Mary, made of her substance, and for her to give birth. It's not outside the realm of possibility. So, um, yeah, I guess I... Guess I I, I don't know. Any of you guys struggle with the idea of a virgin birth? Anybody want to fess up to that? I, what's that? After hearing that really, that setup, I have no sympathy for you. <laughs> either we live in a supernatural universe or we don't. Um, <laughs> either we live in a supernatural universe or we don't. If you struggle with the idea of the supernatural, that's a different discussion. Um, I actually, that's a whole philosophical discussion that we can have. Um, and that's worth addressing. Uh, but that's, that's really what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea, does the God who caused galaxies to spin forth uh, have an issue with fertilizing the egg of a young virgin? And I think the answer is, I think the answer is no. Um, also, by the way, the New, New Testament writers understood the birds and the bees. They knew how babies worked and they knew how a woman gets pregnant. That's why Joseph is divorcing her because the, the pregnancy is the evidence that she's been with someone. So these were not simple-minded fools. These are people who understand how the human body works. Uh, and that is what makes all of this so miraculous. So um, it is the, it's, the, it's the argument, the thing that, that Joseph struggles with is how did this happen? And until he hears from God that God did it, he's reasonable in thinking that Mary slept with somebody. So um, 
I think we'll talk about the perpetual virginity of Mary and whether or not Mary had other children and whether Jesus had literal brothers and sisters and next time because it's 2, well, 14, and I should stop. I just ran right up to the wire, and now we got to pray. So uh, let's talk afterwards. If anybody has any questions or thinks I'm mean to people who have problems with the virgin birth, uh, talk, visit with me, and I will get more pastoral real quick. <clears throat> Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving us the scripture in which, we, in which we encounter him, where we see him, where we see his love for people. And we thank you that you love us so much that you sent him for us, that you sent him to redeem us, that you sent him to rescue us when we were still sinners. He came at the right time and he redeemed us. And so, God, we praise your name. We thank you for Christ. Lord, we do pray for any who struggle with having faith in you, trusting in you, believing in things like the virgin birth, Lord. Um, we would pray, we would pray like the man in the gospel who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Would you help our faith to grow as we study Jesus and as we learn more about your scripture? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.